Well, I thank you all for that wonderful singing. That is a great song. It's hard to get more appropriate than that song for this kind of a, kind of a lesson. I was here a few years ago with you all. Uh, it's wonderful to be back. I won't remember your name, so I'll just tell you. <laughs> Please say it again. Uh, I'm Todd Chandler, by the way, if you don't know my name. Uh, really a pleasure uh, to be with you this week and be part of this, this study. It's a great theme that Reagan just uh, reviewed with you. It's a wonderful theme to understand. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11, please. We're going to start there in just a moment, reading there. Our aim this weekend is to uphold faith. Maybe you already have it, then I hope you walk out encouraged and emboldened and strengthened in it. Maybe you have faith in God, but you're wondering, and you have doubts, and you have questions, and you wonder in particular, how does science fit into this? Because the message of our culture are really loud about the way science should affect belief in a God. And hopefully this weekend will help solidify faith. I think Reagan's right. I've studied a lot of biology. And the more you study biology, the more you see the Lord in it, if you have eyes to see it. And I hope, hopefully by the time I've done what I'm trying to do this weekend, and certainly by the time Buddy does what he will do this weekend, that will be more, more, more manifest. We'll begin in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. That's a faith statement there. Ultimately, where all this stuff comes from that we look at in science and in the natural world, we decide it got here one way or the other by faith. And as by faith we understand the worlds were framed by the word of God, not by anything that was seen. And it's the same kind of message we find in Psalm 19. If you turn there with me, we'll read just a few verses from that psalm to set the stage for what we're doing. Psalm 19, beginning in verse 1. Psalm 19 and verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And then he goes on and continues in that theme. The idea of that psalm is, creation speaks to us. And there's a message in there, and it's a message from God about Him to us. I can't know His will by studying creation, but I can know aspects of Him by studying creation. But just like this revelation can be read but misunderstood and misused, so can God's revelation in creation be misread and misused. And so the message He gives to us in it becomes a message entirely different than what it's supposed to be. Sometimes 180 degrees different than what it's supposed to be. And what I aim to do this evening is do take us one little step in showing what do we see about God in creation. And we're going to look at that together. We're going to look at a, at a subject that is common in this, uh, in this subject, in this discipline, which is vision. God is in sight. I mean that in a couple different applications. One, God can be seen, and He can be seen when we look at vision. Now we're going to look at this again tomorrow, but He's going to take a whole other sort of take on vision and go in a place that I'm just going to skip a rock over tonight. But that's what we're going to talk about tonight. God is in sight. So 
We're looking at God from His creation revelation instead of His written revelation primarily this evening. Charles Darwin set sail on the USS Beagle in 1831. He spent five years circumnavigating the globe. He went around the whole world. And his job on that boat, as many of you know, was to be a naturalist. He would go out when they'd pull over and they would observe nature. And he took copious notes and drawings and samples and specimens. And in that five years of time, he wrote and collected a lot. And then in 1859, he published this... uh, First a paper, and then his book. This paper, titled, On the Tendency of Species to Form Varieties, and on Perpetuation of Varieties in Species by Natural Means of Selection. Now, there's a mouthful. It's where he proposed to the world his idea, what he called natural selection. He was not the first one to suggest that species came from other kinds of forms, But he was the first one to give what seemed to be a workable mechanism for it. This is how it happens. Natural selection is how it works out. And he published this paper. And then in 1859, he published Origin of Species. And it sold wildly. And it changed the world. I don't know know of a book that's had as much impact since 1859 as Origin of Species on, on the culture. Its impact is bigger than most of us understand. It has been absolutely profound partly because of the way people took that and then applied it to faith in God. Darwin's key idea in that book was this, that populations change over time. People knew that, but they change over time due to natural selection. So much so, in fact, that you can get everything we see from a common ancestor, every kind of living form. Darwin is famous for stopping at the Galapagos Islands. These are off the coast of Ecuador a few hundred miles, the Galapagos, and on there... Uh, he spent several weeks popping around the islands. And it's a un- very unique s- ecosystem because it's so isolated. These little volcanic, kind of like Hawaii, very, very isolated in the middle of nowhere. So whatever critters are there got there somehow, <laughs> and they've adapted to those unique kind of environments on those islands. There's a little, a few over, uh, over, little over, I'll get this out in a minute, a little over 100 islands in that island group. Maybe the most famous are this, the birds on the island, the finches. And what Darwin knew was that he found on the South American continent one species of finch. There may be more than that, but there's at least one dominant species. When he got to the Galapagos, he found one and another and another and another and another and another. All these different species of finch in this one little group of islands. And this is just some of them. You'll notice some here on the right, those are ground finches and they eat seeds. And depending on the size of the seeds they eat, their beaks are range from really big to not nearly as big. And then you have some that are insect eaters. And there are whole different varieties of those, different shaped bills, different, some are long, some are skinny, some are narrow. One actually uses a tool. It grabs a piece of grass and actually digs insects out of crevices of rocks and trees and then eats them. Very unique. And then there is a fruit eater, actually. But they're all finches. And this is Darwin's thought. Were all of those created individually by God and placed specifically on those islands in the Pacific Ocean for that specific island? Because that's the only place you find that finch is right there. And the only place you find this finch is over here. Or did maybe some finches from the main continent somehow get over there in a storm or on storm debris or on some other kind of boat? And they got on these islands and over time they 
adapted to their unique environment. And some started to eat more insects, some started to eat different kinds of seeds, and so you have different varieties of finches now. And that's what he concluded. Well, this is, these were not all specially created. And we'll talk more about that idea. That was a really common idea in Darwin's day, that every species was created as we find it now, and it wasn't going to change. That was a really common idea. And Darwin looked at that and said, that's not what happened. That just doesn't make sense. And frankly, I agree with him. That doesn't make sense. It makes a lot of sense that one bird uh, population of the finch got there somehow, and over time, those populations changed. And we know this all the time. It's not a surprise. I imagine there's one or two hunters in this group. I don't know. I'm in Texas, so <laughs> pretty good chance. Just playing my odds. Deer in Florida are little bitty. I don't know what they're like around here. But in Florida, they're really tiny. I spent a lot of time growing up in Ohio. Ohio, West Virginia. Deer, they're a lot bigger. Did God make big deer in North America and North North America and tiny deer down in Florida? Or did, were deer in the United States and there's an advantage to be small in Florida, there's an advantage to be large in Ohio, and that's who survives. That's probably what it is. I'm confident that's what it is. So we know species change all the time. And Darwin got to that. And so he wrote his book. And not only did he decide, well, finches can come from other finches, what he decided was a finch could come from something that wasn't not only not a finch, it wasn't a bird. And that thing came from something that wasn't anything. In fact, all living things of all kinds, from bacteria to fungus to a cactus to you, all trace to a common ancestor. And the one picture he had in his book was this one. You can't write a book anymore, it seems, without having pictures on every page. Right? We, don't, we won't read those. <laughs> Certainly not a science book. Um, Darwin liked to write a lot, and he talked a lot. But everybody did often back then. And if you can figure out what he's doing in this picture, this is part of the tree of life. That's what he was trying to depict. Here's some branches, and at the top, they continue to branch off, and at the bottom, you have some lines. If you are close enough, you can read it. There's A, B, C, D, E, and F as you go along this row. And those all, if these were to descend down here towards the stage, would eventually end up in one common trunk of a tree. That was Darwin's theory, a single unified tree of life. And he got that by looking at things like the finches. And to him... That was a very reasonable idea. So we're going to look at that idea, specifically about the question of the eye, about vision. Actually, we're not going to talk about the eye much at all tonight. Buddy's got that covered in spades tomorrow, I think. But we're going to talk about the eye, vision a little bit. Because your eye is remarkable, remarkable. And Darwin knew that. Even as little as we understood about the eye, we knew understood a lot then, but nothing like we know now. And he looked at the eye and said, where could this thing have come from? Could that really have come from something less and less and less? And he said in this very famous quote, to suppose that the eye, with all its inimitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration, could have been formed by natural selection, seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. Darwin recognized there were things in nature that looked really complicated. Could his theory really explain it? And he said, look, it doesn't seem like it can, but I'm confident it can, actually. That's how powerful natural selection is. I'm confident that can happen. And that's where he laid down on it. And that's exactly what modern science tells you. There's no question where the eye comes from. We all know it. And it goes something like this. If you look in one group of organisms, these are all mollusks. 
This is a limpet. And it doesn't really have an eye, but as you can see, if you can see that picture, yeah, you can see pretty well. It has a layer of light-sensitive cells on it and a nerve fiber running out of it. So there's no lens. There's no cornea to cover it. There's no iris to open and close like you have, the colored part of your eye that opens and closes to control how much light gets actually in that eye. Um, but it is light-sensitive. In that same group, you have abalone. Abalone have a layer of light-sensitive eyes, but it's in a cup. And so now you, have, you can better detect what direction that light's coming from because all those light-sensitive eyes are angled in a different direction, and so you know where the light's coming from. That, that's more information than just having a flat layer of light-sensitive eyes. If you look at a nautilus, which is in the same group as octopi and squid, except it has a shell and they don't, but it has little tentacles that swims around this cool little shell. It has a layer of eyes, and it's in a cup, and it starts to have this cavity inside that actually is filled with a fluid inside of it. Your eye has a cavity filled with fluid inside of it. And if you look at the marine snail, now you have a covering, like a cornea. If you poke yourself in the eye, the first thing you touch is your cornea. They have something like that. And finally, you get to a squid whose eye is, as I understand it, every bit as complex as ours, remarkably complex, with a retina, the light-sensitive layer in the back, connected to a big nerve coming out the back, fluid-filled space in the middle. It has a, a lens right in the middle of it. So does the, the marine snail. Has had a lens. I missed that one. Has a cornea over it. Very similar to our eyes. Really complex. And this is what Darwin said. Look at this. That's evolution, right? That's the answer. And I tell you, pictures are powerful, aren't they? Pictures are powerful. Well, is that how it arose? Is that how the human eye arose? Is that how the squid's eye arose? After all, those are all in the same taxonomic group. They're all mollusks. Is that how that eye arose? A story is not an explanation. It's a story. And to be an explanation, a story has to have concrete evidence and expl explanation behind it. There's a, 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 a group of stories that we read to our kids growing up, written by Rudyard Kipling, most famous for writing The Jungle Book. If you don't know the book, you probably know the movie. Right. Rudyard Kipling. He wrote a bunch of short stories called Just So Stories. One of my students got me this book of Just So Stories just this past semester. She happens to be here tonight, actually. She's sitting right over here. <laughs> uh, Hannah Cooper's her name. There you go. Because <laughs> she's heard this thought before. Heard this point before. And she's in a used bookstore. She said, I got something for you. Just So Stories. And it's things like how the camel got its hump how the elephant got its trunk, how the leopard got its spots. And it's all these stories. And it's a real fantastic, and he makes up words, and they're just fun stories for kids, how it happened. At the end, well, how did the elephant get its trunk? Well, here's the story, just so. That's how it happened. And it's interesting, and it's on one level possible, not really, <laughs> but it's a just so story. And so the phrase just so stories, and this is important, it's going to come up here in a few little bit, has come to represent a story that has maybe a nice line, an explanation to it, but it, a nice explanation, not the word, a nice story to it, but it doesn't have any substantive explanation to it. It's missing what makes an explanation powerful or believable, evidence or real, demonstrable validity to it. So we're going to talk about just so stories. This picture... 
the series of pictures is a just-so story. Where division comes, it's powerful, it's effective, but it's a story, and it doesn't explain anything. So what I'd like to do is talk about the very beginning of this story. We're not going to talk about the human eye at all. I'm not going to talk about the limpet. I'm going to talk about the story which says, vision began when a one-celled organism became sensitive to light. What I could take a, a few minutes to do is to illustrate what does it take for a one-celled organism to be sensitive to light? How does the story even get started, much less progress in complexity as this picture seems to show it can progress? So that's what we're going to do for a few minutes. Are you excited? Awesome. You guys. Okay, you, you obviously didn't lie to me. You're Christian. So I, I thank you. Thank you. You're actually excited. That's, that's good. Or you're trying to talk yourself into it. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to talk about what it takes to sense light at all. To sense light, you need a few things. First of all, you need to be able to sense some light. (laughs) What's the difference in light and dark? You need to be able to communicate that information. So we think of a cell that's just, an organism that's just one cell big, like bacteria, for example. They're one cell big. Well, if it develops a spot on the outside edge of its cell that's sensitive to light, that's fine. But if the spot is the only thing that knows it, well, who cares? Right? It has to communicate to that cell. So you need a communication pathway for that to happen. You have to be able to combine that communication with other information coming from the environment. Light is by far not the only kind of stimulus that cells are paying attention to. There's food sources and there's enemies and there's pH levels, all kinds of things going on. You also need to be able to integrate that signal with some kind of system that can do something about it. It's one thing to say, hey, there's light over here. Well, what do you want to do? <laughs> you, you want to go there? You want to go away from there? You've got to connect it and integrate it with something that can actually react to it. And that reaction must be beneficial. It must be wired so that you're reacting the right way. So when you see the crosswalk sign, don't cross, you don't actually think, well, that means go. Right? That would be non-beneficial. And those kinds of things need to act, operate the right way. And then you need to maintain the system. You have to reset switches that can go turn on and off, get the fixed parts that wear out. You have to feed, continually feed it energy. You have to get rid of waste, because every time you burn energy, there's waste. You've got to take care of all these systems all at the same time. Sure. A cell developed the ability to detect light, and then the story moves on. And that's about how it goes, folks. That's not an exaggeration. Let me tell this how this began. The first cells developed the ability to detect light. We're going to take a look at an organism in a group called Archaea. All living things can be lumped into one of three big folders on your laptop. We call them domains. The eukaryotes, those are the most complex, that's you. It's also mushrooms, so don't get too excited about it, but it's us. <laughs> There's bacteria, which we know pretty well. And this other group called Archaea, which we used to think were bacteria because they look the same in a microscope, but once we got into biochemistry more, we realized that they're pretty distinct. They're different. They get their own group, archaea. We're going to look at this little guy in there named Halobacteria. Halobacteria. And he's this little guy that has a flagellum. You can see a little bit of that, a little light. Flagellum is it's like a tail. It's not a tail because it doesn't wag. It rotates like a boat rotor. Right? You can't rotate a tail. Not more than once. <laughs> this dog's not going to like that. So, and it spins just like your boat spins. Right? It just spins around and can spin as it travels around. And so it, it moves around. And so a lot of bacteria have these. Not all do, but some do. 
But it doesn't move just any which way all the time. It actually does something called tumbling. So what this tail, this flagella will do is it'll spin a little while and a bacteria will travel. Just look at the left side of the screen for a second. I shouldn't have shown you both sides. That's teacher mistake right there. So look at the left side of the screen and you'll see at the start of that arrow, the bacteria is sort of going up and to the right. And it'll do that for a while. And then randomly, that flagella will turn off. And that little bacteria will just tumble in three-dimensional space. Just whatever it's doing is just right. And then whenever the flagella kicks up again, and it will in a moment, whatever direction that cell is facing, that's where it's going to go. Get the idea? And so it'll run and then tumble, and then run and tumble. And that's how this thing generally floats around and moves around. And without any kind of stimulus, it often doesn't really go anywhere. It sort of stays in the same general area because it randomly will run and tumble and kind of end back roughly maybe where it started. But in the presence of light, the run-tumble pattern changes. So if it reacts to negative light, just like you and I, there are certain types of light not good for us. They burn us. You don't want to be in them too long. Well, same thing for bacteria. And so they can detect what kind of wavelength of light is coming in. And so if that's pretty impressive just in itself, right? How's that? So if harmful light's coming in, it will run longer because it needs to get out of where that is. It's still going to run and tumble, but it's going to run for a longer period of time, and then it's going to tumble. And as long as it, it, it continues to be in harmful light, you'll have these long runs. But once the light gets either neutral or beneficial for it, then it runs less because it wants to stay there. Get the idea? So you can affect the run and tumbling pattern and in so doing affect how this bacteria actually moves. It can go in a direction, not because it knows it's going in a direction, it's just reacting to the light around it. And it will go away from harmful light and it will tend to stay in beneficial light. All right. Just with that, some of you are already like, uh, <laughs> I can see it. Boy, you you got to buckle up. This is, I mean, I'm, I'm playing tiddlywinks right now. Just wait till Buddy gets rolling. <laughs> so, if this is new and not the kind of language you speak, and I know it's not, only, only slightly weird people enjoy this kind of thing. I'll confess it. I confess it. That's me. Um, but the concept isn't that difficult. Right? Bacteria are going to react to light. And so they move towards something good or away from something bad. So how does that happen? How does that work? We're going to take a little bit. What does it take to do that? Uh, all cells, bacteria included, have something on them called a cell membrane. It's the layers, like the leather on the basketball. And that cell membrane is made of those chemicals, kind of look like these little guys. And embedded in there are all kinds of other things. These big pink-looking things are proteins. And they're all over the place. And they do all kinds of things. Well, there's a specific little group in bacteria that I want to talk to you about, and their job is to um, detect light. It starts with this little guy. I'm going to talk about three, yeah, more than three, but three main, <laughs> the other ones are going to be really fast. I'm not going to explain them really. Uh, three main little chemicals in the, in the cell membrane. The first one is called retinol, and it's this. This figure may not look like anything to you. This is stick figures for chemists is what this is. That's all this is. It's a quick way to draw, chemists draw things. Everywhere you see two lines meeting, there's a carbon atom there. That's what this means. And don't worry about all the other stuff. There's all, maybe other stuff in there. This is a stick figure. This is called retinol. And what retinol does is it physically changes when it gets hit by the right kind of light. 
and it changes the specific spot. And it goes from that shape, and that right there, that carbon can swing. Like if you held your elbow up and you just swung it down. That's what it does. And it gets hit, hit by light. It swings down. I like to say it doinks. I don't think that's the word, <laughs> but it doinks when it gets hit by light. <laughs> and that, can, that communicates something. If you're nearby, it's like if your wife doinks you in the ribs. That communicates something. Right? If your parent doinks you in the head during church, okay, that communicates something, right? Knock it off. Sit still. It communicates something. And chemically, that communicates something. So retinol changes shape when it gets hit by light. And that's important because it's connected inside a much bigger molecule. This is a type of protein. Proteins are big. And inside this protein sits retinol. So in this picture, retinol is a little pink uh, squiggle there in the middle. You see those green things all around it? It looks like coils and stuff. That's representing some shapes that proteins have. There's something called rhodopsin in bacteria. You have rhodopsin in your eye too, by the way. It serves the same It reacts to light. And buried in that, rho- in that rhodopsin protein is this retinol. And it's attached to a very specific place, a very specific point. A proteins are like a pearl necklace. If you take a a pearl necklace is made out of a string of pearls, right? Just string them all together. A train is made out of a string of railroad cars. You just string them together. Proteins are made out of little things called amino acids, and you just string them together. And when you're done, you get a protein. And retinol is attached to amino acid number 216, and it's got to be attached to that one. When it's attached to that one, and light hits it the right way, it does its doink thing, and sensory rhodopsin can sense that. And it changes its shape. In fact, it runs through a whole cycle of shape changes. And they name all these things. So here at the top, you see in yellow sensory rhodopsin, light is coming in by that blue arrow, and you just follow the circle around. And there's a K phase and an L phase. There's an M1, an M2, an O, and then it resets. Get the idea? So light hits retinol, retinol doinks, and it's in the middle of this rhodopsin protein, and that rhodopsin protein goes... And somewhere in the middle of the is a key moment, and it's that M1 moment. You see how communication is happening? How can a light cell become sensitive to light? Well, it needs to have rhodopsin embedded in it. That protein has to be there. And it needs retinol embedded in it and attached in the right place in the right way. So that when that light hits the retinol, the retinol moves, and then it makes this whole other big protein move and rotate itself around. Well, that's great. You change the shape of a protein. Who cares? There's got to be more to that story. So the last major molecule I'm going to mention, retinol, rhodopsin, and then you have something called the HTR protein. And in the cell membrane of that cell, rhodopsin sits here, and HTR sits right here next to it. So when that rhodopsin changes its shape to that cycle we just saw, HTR can sense that, and it knows that. And HTR has a portion of it, this big green tail, that hangs down inside the cell. And so when Centrodobsin changes its shape, it causes HTR to change its shape, and the tail down inside the cell wiggles, basically. (laughs) And what do you think that does? That communicates something. So now you can get a signal that's outside the cell, down inside the cell. Because you have protein buried in the cell membrane that has a tail sticking down. Your cells work exactly the same way, by the way. <laughs> Very similar, right? 
how cells communicate. Things from the outside to the inside. And so you have an HDR protein that sits right next to this Rho-Dobson protein. And it's associated in a very specific arrangement. You actually have two of each. In red, you have the Rhodopsin, sensory Rhodopsin molecule, and two of them on the left and two of them on the right. And in green in the middle, you have two HDR proteins. So they join in this combination. If you were to take looking like down from the top, above them, like a, the Goodyear blimp view of these proteins, this is kind of what they look like. And they interact right there. Those two red coils that we call F and G, and those two green sections we call TM2 and TM1, those things are really close to each other. And when these proteins do all their moving around, I'm going to give you a little detail that I don't expect you at least you know, to remember at all, but I, I give it to you because I want you to understand this stuff has to work right. It has to be precise. Where's the number? The... It rotates 10 degrees? Where is it? There it is. Yes. The TM2 coil, the green one, the top green coil, when it receives, recognizes the rhodopsin is moving, that HDR pro protein also moves, that TM2 piece rotates clockwise 15 degrees and then tilts. And that has to work right. I would expect you remember that. That's just one little indication that every little step in this has mathematical precision built into it that we're not getting into at all. And it must be mathematically precise to work. This is all happening in three-dimensional space. And so as it rotates and it tilts, it does it at just the right measurements and just the right way to continue sending the signal down into the cell. And that does it on that side as well. So what you get, overview, is this. Light comes in from the top. Can you, can you see that little green or bluish, whatever, SR2? That's the rhodopsin. See the little squiggle in it? Do I remember the name of that one? Retinol. Good, somebody. Okay, good. Whew. Retinol. <laughs> and next to it is HTR. And all that chemistry is happening in microseconds. All these things happen in microseconds. And when that tail that's sticking down this there starts wiggling around, it does something. It has to communicate. And it communicates with this little protein called CHEA. There's several CHE proteins. I'm not going to get into detail of this, but I'm going to tell you the idea of how it works. Uh, if I wanted to relay a message, and if we wanted to, but I couldn't, let's say I get to the, I don't know, end of a row. And say, all right, I want the message to get to the end of this other row, but the people on the end of that row are not allowed to see me, and they're not allowed to hear me. So what we're going to do is have everybody in the row hold hands. In fact, the only person in the row that can see or hear me is the very first one. You know how you can get a signal to the end of the row, right? If everybody's holding hands, as soon as I signal the first person, what do they do? You squeeze the hand of the person next to you. And they feel that, they squeeze the hand of the person next to them. And you can very easily get a signal down a row. That's not complicated. Cells do the same thing. But instead of squeezing hands, they use chemicals. And they sort of pass the chemical from one to the next. And a really common chemical is something called phosphate. So in this pathway, in this communication pathway, getting the signal down the pew, 
uh, HTR signal, C-H-E-A. C-H-E-A grabs something called phosphate off a molecule called ATP. The P stands for phosphate, and it grabs one, so now it becomes C-H-E-A with a P stuck on it. Get the idea? Um, it's going to give that then to another CHE protein. CHEY is going to take the phosphate. And that, turn, that tells that thing to do something. It changes its chemistry. And that thing is going to go talk to the switch on the flagella. And it's going to tell it, don't stop. Keep running. Get the idea? And that's how you communicate that. Well, that's great. And it's, it's fascinating. And folks, there's all kinds of steps in here that we're just, of course, glossing over. That's the, that's the main idea. Helping that along is CHEW. It helps the communication between the HTR and the CHEA. Of course, you have to reset this at some point. So to pull the... There you go. CHEZ, we think, helps pull the, the P group off of the CHEY. CHEB pulls the P off the CHEA, because you've got to turn that CHE off again, right? You've got to get the P off of it. Stick it on, you've got to take the, take the signal away. And so that's how you can reset the system. You basically following? Isn't cell biology cool? <laughs> I just taught that in the fall. It's, it's like every day, this is what you do. It's, it's heavy, but it's, it's cool. Well, CHEB, if you see where that is, not only does it help reset CHEA by pulling that phosphate off of it, but when it has a phosphate on it, it goes back and talks to the HDR again. So it starts talking to the beginning of that cycle. There's another, because you don't want CHEB talking too much to HDR, there's another protein that talks it and says, hey, don't listen to him, listen to me. That's CHER. And they do different things. And the way they communicate with the HDR protein is they stick different chemicals on it. Something called a methyl group. And the methyl can either active, make that HDR more active and more easily activated, or it can inhibit it and make it harder for that thing to do its job. So you can help control this signaling pathway. Can you ramp it up a little bit? Can we wait, put the brakes on a little bit? We're getting, you need to slow it down. And CHEB and CHER play a role in that. Okay. You happy? <laughs> so there's a general overview of a one-celled organism became sensitive to light. That's the overview. In addition, you've got to reset the entire thing. Retinol has to, be, has to de-doink, right? It's got to de-doink itself. You have to integrate all of those signals. The proteins must target the correct molecules. They must put that phosphate on the correct place. Because you can put it lots of places in a cell and do lots of things. Phosphates are a really common signaling molecule. The proteins have to be in the right locations. All the proteins must be present. Or you get breaks in the communication cycle. And this is a basic intro to the system. Any one of these steps, you can go a lot deeper into how it actually works, into why it works. And so we hear some simple cells developed light-sensitive spots in the membrane that could detect the presence of light, and then it got slightly better over time and slightly better over time, and now you have an eye. That's what it takes to get the process started. That's the once-upon-a-time story right there. Once upon a time. That's the first four words of the story. 
Pictures are no explanation. They're powerful, they're interesting, but they don't explain anything. Go back to the mollusk series of images we had, go, keep going on the left, somewhere down there would be a bacteria cell with a light-sensitive spot. And somebody needs to stop and say, where did that spot come from? Get down to the chemistry. That's where biology happens. Get down to the chemistry and explain where that came from and how it got there that way. If you can't explain that, you don't have an explanation. You have a story. And that's what we've got in the story of where vision came from. Well, you see that, and um, it's fair to ask, well, why... People who study this, why, why not question it? Why not ask where it comes from? I'll illustrate maybe this way. Uh, imagine these are rocks in, in your backyard, rocks in your backyard. And somebody took the time to just go and make a map of every rock in your backyard. And here they are. Uh, just looking at this pattern, does it look like anybody put these rocks here on purpose where they are? Or does it just look like a generic backyard with rocks in it? It's supposed to look like a generic backyard with rocks in it. That's what my attempt. <laughs> well, if you walked out one morning, you saw the same rocks in the same yard in this configuration. <laughs> you would know somebody did that. You might accuse me of doing that. <laughs> Who else is going to do that? <laughs> you might question their judgment, but you would know something intelligent, someone intelligent did that. There's an innate observation that we look at something like this and we think, no, there's no reason to think that was done on purpose. There, that must have been done on purpose because it looks like things done on purpose. And we do this all the time with plagiarism, insurance fraud, insider training, murder. We do it all the time. Arrowhead or rock, all the time. How about this yard with rocks in it? <laughs> Random? Or somebody did that? Somebody did that. And nobody would think differently than that. Because it has the characteristics of something that looks like it was done on purpose. And that's a whole other question. What, is, what are those characteristics? But we, we didn't think about it very long. We know those things. It has information in it. That's the biggie. It has information in it. That's why this is powerful. It has information in it. You may disagree with it, but it has information in it. <laughs> and you know that somebody did that. Intelligence creates information. This has some kind of information. It was doing something. And it has not just pattern. There might be a pattern in this. In fact, I have time to do this real quick, real quick, before we take a break. The chance of the rocks being as they are in this picture in your backyard is almost infinitely impossible. Take one rock, pick your favorite on the screen, and move it the smallest amount you can to the right. That's now a different arrangement of rocks, right? Move it to the right again, that amount, and again, and again, and again. And now put it back where it started and go nor north and south and west and north, north, northeast and whatever. Every direction possible. Do that with every possible combination of every rocks on that screen, and you have basically an infinite possibility of arrangements of rocks. What's the chance of rocks being like this in your backyard? Almost infinitely impossible that they're there, and yet there they are. And no one says, well, look how improbable that is. Somebody did that. Nobody thinks that. Because it doesn't look intelligent. 
This is also highly improbable for more reasons. <laughs> Nobody would question that it wasn't done un, by an intelligent creator doing that. Right? There's something innate we see in things. And we say, that was on purpose. We don't put people on death row because we proved they committed murder. It's because, beyond a reasonable doubt, perhaps, or whatever the standard is in Texas. There's a reason people who study these things in nature don't see into them. They don't hear God's message. And this quote, I think, illustrates it very well. Uh, let me skip ahead for, for, for speed's sake. Even if there were no actual evidence in favor of the Darwinian theory, we should still be justified in preferring it over all rival theories. Richard Dawkins. Brilliant guy. Difficult to deal with. Difficult to read. Pretty, pretty accurate. How can a man say, even if there were no evidence... You'd have to accept Darwinism. How is that possible? Another evolutionary biologist, renowned evolutionary biologist, Harvard professor and all, uh, wrote this. It's part of a book review in the 90s. Richard Lewontin. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories. I told you that was coming back, right? <laughs> the just-so story. He says so biology is full of just-so stories. Because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. That's why. Before we ever look at any evidence, we are committed to finding a material cause. Well, folks, if you're committed to a material cause, you have no choice but to accept something like Darwinism. You can't accept anything else. You've already made up your mind. Continues. It's not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. There's a lot of words in that, in that paragraph. What he's saying is we don't have to have material explanations, but we do. We're forced because we have, a, before we get started, a priori adherence to material causes. Well, folks, you can't believe in God. You can't believe God did something outside of material causes if you're, before you even ask the questions, you decided it had to be done by a material cause. Moreover, that materialism is absolute. For we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. The eminent Kant scholar Louis Beck used to say that anyone who could believe in God could believe in anything. To appeal to an omnipotent deity is to allow that at any moment the regularities of nature may be ruptured, that miracles may happen. You understand what he's saying there? The materialism is absolute in natural science because we cannot let a divine foot to get in. We will not allow it. If you do that, it just might be that miracles happen. Like a resurrection, perhaps. We can't allow that to happen. Let's close with one of these passages. Let's turn to the book of Luke, and then we will close and take a short break. Luke chapter 12.
Verse 54. Luke 12, 54. Then he also said to the multitudes, Whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say, A shower is coming, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, There will be hot weather, and there is. Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern this time? I may well miss the deeper significance of nature. I can do that. I think that's what Lewontin and Dawkins have done. And they've set themselves up to do that. What Jesus told this audience is, God in flesh is standing before you talking to you and you can't even see him. He's literally in your physical presence, in physical form. And you don't know God is with you. You can figure out the weather, but you don't know what that's about. It's about me and I'm standing here. And you're missing the significance of this moment and why I'm here. I think that's where they, they make that same mistake. It's by faith we understand that the worlds were made by the Word of God, by things that are seen, unseen, not by things that are seen. Thank you for your attention. We'll take a break. Five-minute break. Thank you, Rick.